My name is Matt Moran. I'm one of the pastors of this church. Uh, I'm excited about this passage. This is the time in our service where I get to open up a chunk of scripture and have the responsibility to be clear, to be helpful, to be faithful with this piece. And I'm excited about this passage. I loved what Joey said last week when he said that Jesus was a Bible teacher. We're going to see that same thing again this week as we talk about a story where Jesus goes back to the Old Testament scriptures. We'll see from the references that Jesus makes in this story that Jesus actually knew his Bible backwards and forwards. Sometimes I think we get in the tendency of thinking that everything that Jesus came up with was totally original. Jesus knew his Bible so well. And it's important as a church that we realize that the Bible is a unified, cohesive whole. And one of the things that Jesus was doing during his mission on earth was explaining to the people that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing forward to him. And we're going to see that again today as we go a couple different places in the Old Testament. So we will go back and forth a little bit today and try and get a handle on the significance of what Jesus is saying in this story. So in the story, Jesus says very clearly that he is the cornerstone. And for, for the rest of us, the question's obvious. What is a cornerstone? We might know, um, we might know that like in an ancient building, the cornerstone is the largest, most important piece. It's the stone that holds the whole structure together. But if we're not in construction, we use that word in a couple different contexts today. So, for example, you might say something like, you might say that Bill Belichick has been the cornerstone of the New England Patriots' success over the past decade. You could say if, he, if you took him away, the whole thing potentially starts to disintegrate. You might say that cheesecake is the cornerstone of the Cheesecake Factory. If you take cheesecake away, you've got a restaurant called Factory and a really long menu. (laughs) The cornerstone is essential. If you remove it, it's the linchpin. It's the anchor. It's holding everything together. That's how Jesus describes himself. So we'll unpack that more as we get into the story. But let's read the scripture together again. This is Mark 12. Verses 1 through 12, the parable of the wicked tenants. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, And finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The story ends by saying that the leaders who heard this story, they were seeking to arrest him. But they feared the people because they perceived he had told the story against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, I know that as we open your word, it has the power to change and to convict and to create repentance and faith. It has the power to point us to your son. So I pray that as we look at your word, you would subdue the skepticism and the doubt and the lack of faith and the disinterest that resides in us and cause us to receive your word with faith and to see your son more clearly. I ask for it. I know you can do it. So we pray for it by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay. As we've been preaching through Mark's gospel, you might remember this kind of story called the parable. Um, For example, when we went through Mark 4, we talked about the parable of the sower and the seed. And in that parable, Jesus told told the story about a farmer who went out to sow seed. A parable is a story with an intent. In other words, it's just a story, but it has a distinct message. It's trying to get a point across. And in some cases, a parable has one single meaning, but parable as a genre also includes stories um, like today's that have multiple forms of symbolism going on. And another thing to know about parables is that not everyone understands them. Not, the whole audience doesn't get it. The usual response to a parable is kind of, what does that mean? Earlier this year, when we preached through Mark 4, um, the, re- the response recorded in Mark 4 by the disciples, they heard the whole thing about the farmer and the seed and the different kinds of soil, but their response is, they needed an interpretation. They didn't get it. They had to ask Jesus, walk us through that one more time. They came and asked him for an interpretation. They said, Jesus, what are you actually talking about? Like, I understand there's some kind of deeper meaning going on here, but you need to walk me through that again. It's kind of like the way that I felt when I put down Moby Dick. I put it down and said, I think I just read 500 pages about a whale. Like, what just happened? There was some sort of symbolism, something metaphorical happening there, but I didn't really get it. And that's often the response that we hear when recorded to a parable. There's a vague understanding from the audience that something deep and meaningful was going on, but they don't know exactly what it is. And that's the typical response to a parable, but that's what makes this parable so unique and powerful. At the end of the story, everyone knows exactly what Jesus meant. The interpretation comes late in the story, but when it's over, there's no room for confusion. Everyone knows exactly what Jesus was talking about. So let's get into it. It says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. He leased it to tenants. He went into another country. That would actually be kind of a familiar situation in first century Palestine. Okay, so a landowner plants a vineyard. He goes away, he leaves his piece of real estate with tenants. When you plant a vineyard, you don't cash in the same year. It would would have taken at least four years for the vineyard to be harvestable. So when you plant this thing, it's not profitable right away. 
So the normal method for that type of arrangement would be you plant it, you set the whole thing up, but then you leave it to tenants, and they would agree to, to work the vineyard, and then they would give a portion of the fruit to the landowner. At that point, the landowner, who may have had several vineyards going on, could send his servant that would be a delegate of his to go and retrieve the fruit that the tenants had been taken care of. So in this culture, it was actually honorable work to be that delegate, to be a mouthpiece of the landowner. You were his spokesperson. And the details of the vineyard, they actually were details that would have been very familiar to the audience that Jesus was speaking to. In the Old Testament, God actually often refers to his people as a vineyard. Um, He uses that type of imagery. So you remember in Genesis 12, when God blesses Abraham and makes his covenant with him, he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan for his covenant people has always been that they would be fruitful, that they would be a blessing to the world. And because of that, uh, after that covenant with Abraham, we often see vineyard-type imagery in the Old Testament. We see it most clearly in Isaiah 5, where the prophet uses language of a vineyard in very poetic form. I'll read this in Isaiah chapter 5. This is Isaiah 5, 1 through 4, if you want to turn there. Isaiah 5 says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? When Jesus starts talking about a vineyard, his audience would have understood this symbolism. God's saying in that, um, in that passage in Isaiah, what more could I have done for you? What more could I have done for my chosen people? I made every provision for my people to be a blessing to the world. Just like he promised. And instead, the vineyard is bringing back bad, stinking, sour, wild grapes. This is a condemnation of Israel. God's given them prophets and priests to remind the people to keep their covenant with God. To remind them that they are God's chosen people. All through the Old Testament, God would send people to remind them, to remind Israel that they were his chosen people. So he would send them prophets like Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, all to remind them of the covenant. And yet, his people were unfaithful. So when the season comes and enough time has passed to expect fruitfulness, the landowner goes and uh, sends the messenger. It's time to retrieve the fruit. So what should we expect in this encounter? What we should expect is from the tenants is, thank you for letting us take care of this vineyard. We've worked hard for the past four years, and we've seen the fruitfulness. There should be more to come. Do they load him up with the best of the fruit? Do they give him everything that they've got to offer? No. The text says they beat him. They beat the guy and send him away empty-handed. 
This is obviously a deliberate act of defiance. They're saying, we don't recognize you as authoritative, and we don't recognize the authority of the landowner. So you're reading the story and you think, well, maybe there's been some sort of misunderstanding. So again, the master sends another servant, and they strike him on the head, and they treat him shamefully. And they send another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. So remember, when Jesus is unpacking this, he is talking to trained religious leaders. They knew that the vineyard refers to Israel, and they know that these servants that he's describing were meant to represent the prophets that God has been sending as his mouthpiece to Israel for hundreds of years. Jesus is clearly referencing back to the ways that those prophets had been treated. He's reminding them. He's reminding his audience now. You respect Moses now, but the Israelites rejected Moses as a prophet. People around here are comparing me with Elijah. But when Elijah was here, he had to hide for his life. When Jeremiah was here, he was rejected They put him in stocks and publicly humiliated him. So with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. Jesus is saying, you don't have a very good track record here. These people that like, you know, you've got them on the wall of fame now. They were rejected in their time. And this is where the story turns a little bit. Because it starts to show us something amazing about the heart of God. The owner of the vineyard is sent messenger after messenger to the vineyard, and by now he knows without any doubt that the tenants are up to no good. You know the saying, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? This is the, like kind of where that gets applicable. That's how we would operate. You know, a couple, a couple errands go the wrong way, and we say, okay, that's done. We know the definition of an insanity, right? Doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. So when I read this story, it doesn't really make very much sense to me. I think, why does he keep sending people? Why doesn't he stop? It kind of reminds me of the way that I play poker a little bit. You know, they say, that, they say about poker that if you sit down at the table and you haven't spotted the sucker in the first 30 minutes, then it's you. The last time I played po- poker, um, I never spotted the sucker, and... You know, when you play, sometimes you look at your cards and you know you don't have anything there, but you put a couple chips on the table anyway because you want to play. And then you just kind of keep doing that. You don't have any cards, but you keep putting chips down. Eventually, you, you, all your chips have hemorrhaged away. You keep doing the same thing until you look down and like, that pile that was so big at the beginning, nothing's left. But what we see here, the behavior of, of humans that we would call insane or crazy, this is where we see that the love of God really isn't human. The text says he had still one other. He had a beloved son. The phrase beloved son connects back clearly with Jesus' baptism in Mark 1 when the voice of God comes down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, the landowner had one more person that he could send. But he wasn't sending servants now. There was nothing remotely expendable about this last messenger. He was sending the dearest thing that he had, and it was someone who was not merely a messenger, but it was God's son himself. And he sent him saying, they will respect my son. 
And if you're reading the story, you say, no, they won't respect your son. Their behavior is getting progressively worse, not better. There are no signs of hope here. First, they were sending people away empty-handed. Then they knocked him over the head. Now they're killing people. There aren't any good signs about this relationship. We already know that the tenants are up to no good. They've already proven to be rebels. It's already clear that they're trying to take the vineyard by force and do whatever they want with the land. It's obvious that they don't see themselves as under the domain of the landowner. And yet God the Father sends Jesus, the beloved Son, into the violent, ungrateful world of the tenants. And sure enough, when the Son comes, the tenants say to each other, this is the heir. This is our opportunity. Let us kill him, and the land's going to be ours. Now up until this point, Jesus has been telling his audience what basically amounts to a symbolic history lesson. They knew that the vineyard represented Israel, the people of God. They knew that the landowner represented God. They knew that the servants sent to collect the harvest represented the prophets of old. But I don't think Jesus' audience had any idea that they connected with this story in any personal way until Jesus unpacks it for them. And when he concludes the story, he does it with devastating intensity. What he says is, haven't you read your Bible? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying to his audience, you're the builders. I'm the cornerstone. He's clearly right now predicting his death. He's saying that you'll be part of it. And he's saying just as clearly that judgment is awaiting those who reject him. Matt read Psalm 118 earlier. Okay, that was a Psalm 118 in the context of the Israelites was a messianic psalm that the Israelites would sing together on their way to Jerusalem. So they would be making pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the Israelites would sing this song about the stone that the builders rejected because they were rejoicing that although Israel was small and insignificant in the eyes of the world, they had been chosen by God to be central in his plan of redemption for the world. They were the stone that the bigger, more powerful, more significant, more... uh, more powerful, like militarily strong uh, lands of the ancient world had rejected. And they would rejoice in God's sovereign plan as they made pilgrimage to the city of God. They would rejoice that they were the stone the builders rejected. And Jesus is taking the scripture and declaring he himself is the cornerstone. He's saying to the people, that song you sing about the cornerstone, that's a song that's going to find its ultimate fulfillment in me. He's saying to the religious leaders, I, I personally am the linchpin of the redemptive plan of my Father for the world, and you are rejecting me. Jesus is the cornerstone. That's what he's telling his audience. What does that actually mean for us? Well, this idea of the cornerstone stays in uh, New Testament thinking. A couple, um, we know that Jesus is predicting his death here. We know that he will rise in a few months after A few months after Jesus has risen and walked among people on earth and ascended, if we flash forward just a few months after his resurrection, we see that the Apostle Peter is using the same language in the book of Acts. In this story, Peter and John have just been part of healing a crippled man. Like the church has just started. The Spirit is moving in power. They're full of the power of the Spirit. They're doing miracles. They're preaching the gospel. 
They're healing people in Jesus' name. And as you would expect, given the religious culture right here, it is creating controversy. So again, the religious leaders are upset. And they haul John and Peter in front of the high priest and they say, tell us how you're doing this. By what power or by what name are you doing these things? And the story in Acts tells us that Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man's been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among heaven given, under, given by men, whereby men must be saved. Jesus as cornerstone means that salvation is through him alone. That salvation is only through his death and through his resurrection. It's very popular to think that salvation can be found in other religions, through other people, through alternate means. It can be convenient and sometimes even appealing to think that there are multiple paths to God. But hear the words of Peter when he says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. This is something that we are always and forever going to be tempted to be soft and squeamish about. The exclusive claims of Jesus. But if Jesus is the cornerstone, then any faith apart from him does fall apart. If we believe that there are alternative ways to God, to eternal life, to escape from judgment, or if we affirm to others that those means are our or might be legitimate, we do so under the judgment of God. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Jesus as the cornerstone means that salvation is found in him and him alone, but it also means that judgment is coming for those who reject him. It means salvation for those who believe, but it means judgment for those who reject him. And we in our sinfulness, we don't like such radical claims of authority. Remember, this caused a conflict. If you ever are in conflict for making what seems like a strong claim about the authority of Jesus, this caused a conflict. The reaction of the religious leaders after hearing this was strong. They didn't wait until the next time they got together around a couple pomegranates and figs and say, boy, that guy, he rubs me the wrong way. He says some wild stuff sometimes. No, they wanted to arrest him. They were in a plot to kill him. Jesus never intended to give us the option of finding him as a good example or an inspirational character. He said that he was the cornerstone. He made claims of exclusivity. He spoke of judgment. The appropriate response to the salvation that Jesus offered is not skepticism or lack of faith. It's humility. It's saying, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And secondly, if Jesus is the cornerstone, it means that he's building something. Ephesians 2 tells us what that something is. 
it says of Jesus. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and he came and preached peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone. What he is building is the church. We were brought near. We have access in one spirit to the Father. We have been made citizens in the household of God. And we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. If we believe, if we believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, then the clear teaching of the New Testament is that we are to be wholeheartedly part of the local church. In fact, the Apostle Peter continued using this language many years later when he was writing. I love that Peter, so many years later, he's not just quoting an act, something he heard about the cornerstone because he remembered it because it happened a few months ago. At the end of his life, when he's writing First Peter, he's still talking about this powerful idea that Jesus is our cornerstone. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Jesus is our cornerstone. He's building the church. We are the living stones who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. I could spend the next half hour unpacking First Peter, but let me, say, let me say this simply. Jesus is building his church. He's the foundation. He's the anchor. He's the linchpin. The church is the agent of God's redemptive mission in the world. Jesus said of the church, he said about the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we are the living stones. I hope you're noticing here that Peter doesn't say that because Jesus is the cornerstone, we should all act like living stones. It's not a matter of choice here. We don't achieve that characteristic. This is the identity of all who believe. We are the living stones. Jesus is building the church on, on, um, on us. So let's get excited about that. Let's ask ourselves, am I wholeheartedly embracing the mission of God that is expressing itself 
through the local church? Am I living in my identity as a living stone, part of the church that he's creating? Does my service reflect that? Does my time, my generosity reflect that? It's been so cool for me to see in the last like few months or whatever to see the nucleus that's built in the Wakefield core group because one, Jesus is building his church. Two, people are living in their identity as living stones. It's something that God has designed us to do. The church with Jesus at its foundation is what God will work through to fulfill his redemptive mission on earth. And that is why I don't hesitate to urge people to commitment, to membership, to generosity, to service in their local church. You can say that's convenient. You know, you're a pastor, okay? And you can say, I've been wounded by the church. And if you did, then you and I, we could probably go toe-to-toe with 15 rounds of terrible church stories. But the simple acts of service in the church, whether it's the nursery, whether it's the setup, the meals that have been prepared, the hospitality, the yard work, the phone calls, the study to prepare sermons, the relationships that can be a struggle, the willing to work through awkwardness, the little sacrificial acts of love. Those are simple things, really, right? Yes. But they are also infused with eternal significance because the church is not any other organization. God calls his people into the church to proclaim once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we'd not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Jesus is the cornerstone. And we can stumble over that in doubt and in unbelief, or we can say, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you came into a world that resisted your messengers. Thank you that you came when you knew that we would reject you. We pray that you would help us now to gladly receive you as our cornerstone. Not to stumble, but to believe this by faith and to find our place in the church that you are building. We pray that we would gladly say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hear our prayer, we pray. Amen.